Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, we're going to have our Bible reading before Jacko brings us the message. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, we'll be reading chapter 3 and 4. And uh, last week in chapter 2, we had the account of Jesus' birth. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that is page 1499. Starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Thanks heaps for reading, Ellen. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. I'm Simon. Uh, people call me Jacko around here, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Let me add my welcome to that of Ellen and the band. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, we're continuing in our series in Matthew's Gospel, uh, and you will have noticed that the larger, longer than kind of normal reading there, chapters three and four, uh, that's the way we're going to be moving through Matthew's Gospel sort of for the next little while. So um, rather than sort of slowly working through every single little you know, word, we're going to be sort of doing not a total overview, but just going through some larger sections as we navigate our way through Matthew all the way through to Easter and beyond. Um, I just feel like I need to share this. One of the things that I love uh, in that reading is, I don't know if you caught it, uh, chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Um, I was alerted to this many years ago that um, there was a time in our world and a place on the planet where a particular region, there was no disease or sickness among people. Um, the doctors were out of business, the physios shut their practices. There was no need uh, because Jesus had healed everything, a glimpse of the coming kingdom uh, where there will indeed be no more pain and suffering and death and disease for all the old has passed away. I think it's phenomenal, don't you, Rue? 
In our world, in history, there was a time where every disease and sickness among the people was gone. Um, a glimpse of the best that is yet to come. Amen? That's my sermon. Anyway, no. Um, we're about to get into it. I want you to turn to the person next to you and, and, and think about this question as we get going this morning. It's coming up on the screen. Um, I think it's coming up. There we go. When was the last time you completely forgot about something? When was the last time you completely forgot about something? Turn to the person next to you and share. When was it? What was it? What went down? Have a go. All right, let's come back together. I, I won't ask you to share that, but let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you, Father, for uh, the good news of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we praise you and thank you for uh, the gospel of Matthew. Father, thank you for prompting Matthew by your spirit to write down this biography, this story of the King, the Lord Jesus. And thank you for all that we have in this particular book of the Christ, the book of the King. And we praise you, Father, this morning for this, that little glimpse even just before of uh, the way that the Lord Jesus, when he was here on the planet, uh, there was a time, there was a moment where there was no disease, uh, no sickness, for the Lord Jesus Christ had sorted all that out, giving us a glimpse of what is to come. Uh, Father, we praise you for Jesus, and we pray that we would today, by your Spirit and through your Word, see Jesus, by your Spirit and through your Word, hear Jesus, and by your Spirit and through your Word, we would love Jesus. Trust him today, this week, this year, until we see him and enjoy him forever. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, when was the last time you completely forgot about something? For me, it was Friday uh, last week when I forgot that I was responsible for picking up Fletcher from school. Um, when was the last time you chose to ignore something that you knew you had to do but procrastinated? For me, uh, if you've been around here at City Light long enough, you'll know that um, it's getting Elvanto, Elvanto, our church operating system, up and running. I'm still procrastinating about that one. Um, when was the last time you had to postpone something at last minute? Again, for me, that was last Thursday when I had to postpone a one-to-one -one catch up with someone from church. You see, such is the flawed unpredictability and inconsistency of people like you and me. You don't have to be around people like us for very long to realise that even the best of us are ultimately unreliable and inconsistent. We make commitments, and I get we wholeheartedly believe and want to fulfil those commitments, intend on keeping them. The trouble is that none of us can put our hand up or put our hand on our heart and say, we will always have and always will come through on those commitments. But what's astonishing today as we look at Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Matthew chapter 3 and 4 makes it really clear that God can and does deliver on his promises and commitments. That's the first thing we need to get clear as we dive into this next movement in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's account of the life and work and person of Jesus. It's not complicated today, brothers and sisters, our God comes through on his commitments. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks here at North, or if you've listened to the podcast, yes, we do have a podcast, uh, you would have realised that Matthew chapter 1 um, and 2, Matthew orders there and arranges those opening couple of chapters of his gospel to make clear to his readers 
Yeah, the staggering and subversive way in which God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to be born as a human being to rescue us from our sins. Um, by the way, we're sort of ducking over chapter 2. We did chapter 2 sort of around Christmas time. So if you kind of want to catch up on that, go back to Christmas and you can listen there about how we looked at that. But today I want to lead us through chapters 3 and 4 to some degree in order to see how the emphasis falls on the fact Uh, That by doing this, by God through Matthew showing us this subversive and staggering work of Jesus, God shows us that he can be relied on to come through on his commitments, to deliver on his promises. The question is, why does he do that? I suspect it's because lots of Matthew's first readers struggled with that, struggled with the idea that God does actually keep his commitments and God does come through in the end. Matthew is probably writing his gospel about 30 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The church has grown in the city and around Jerusalem. It's spreading through the Mediterranean. But in some ways, not a whole lot has changed. The Romans are still in charge. They're not the nicest people on the planet. Christians are still basically extremely unpopular with almost everyone And any hope that Jesus would come back really quickly and tidy everything up and bring about the new creation, well, that has sort of, I don't know, faded a little bit and is a bit like on the wane. Looks like God's people are going to have to settle down and settle in and get ready for the long haul and wait. And so Matthew writes this biography, yes, in part to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ who may not yet trust him, But he also writes the gospel to help God's people wait well. And he does that by reassuring his readers that although God may play a long game, he always comes through in the end. He always keeps his commitments, fulfills his promises. See, one of the unspoken challenges that we face as God's people living in this world today is holding firmly to the solid hope that the Lord Jesus Christ actually will come back and return in triumph, that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, that he will bring his people to be with him and his Father and the Holy Spirit forever. It's hard to hold on to that when we've been waiting for quite a long time. It's hard to hold on to that because we live in a world that's deeply sceptical about those kinds of claims. It's hard because our world strains with every sinew inside them to persuade us that actually we're answerable to no one, we're the masters of our own destiny, and well, we have no one to answer for to, especially a returning God. See, it's hard. But Matthew says may take a while, but God will come through. What he says, he will do. He will do. He always has done it. He always will do it. And so in the midst of a whole lot of detail in these two chapters, Matthew chapter 3 and 4, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see again and again and again and again and again and again, God can be trusted. Have a look with me, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. This is how chapter 3 opens. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. When John says God's kingdom is really close, he does it with real dynamism. He's making a massive claim. One commentator, F.D. Brunner, captures it really well. He says this, when the kingdom of God comes, it isn't a matter of a few warning shots fired. It's going to be nuclear, the kind of explosion that reshapes the earth. So it's massive. It's massive, but it's not new. The explicit promise of this coming kingdom stretches all the way back. We've seen this over the last couple of weeks, all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God determined to set up one of David's descendants on the throne at the head of an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that cannot be overthrown. Now, there was a delay between the promise being made of around a thousand years before this happened, but it happened, it did. And John the Baptist's announcement kicks off by saying, the fulfillment of the long-awaited kingdom has come. Without delay, Matthew points out that it's not just the arrival of the kingdom that's the fulfillment of God's promises. He points to another commitment made 800 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah, who anticipated a voice crying out in the wilderness, paving the way for the coming of this messianic king. Matthew also says this forerunner, this announcer of the coming king, was an Isaiah 11 lookalike, wearing camel's hair garments with a leather belt around his waist and diet of locusts and honey. It's picking up words from the prophet Malachi, who wrote 400 years earlier. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Have a look on the screen. See... I will send, here we go, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God said previously he would send someone like this, and now he's come, and he's having a real impact. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 3 People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan. Matthew clearly wants us to see that this movement in the desert is the result of God's long-term commitment keeping. The fact that people, like never before, are heading out in droves for this one-off baptism, saying, yes, yeah, we repent, we turn back to God. We'll say more about repentance in a little while. This brand new thing, this movement, is a sign that the kingdom of God is breaking in. You see that in John's pretty intense confrontational preaching picked up in verse 11, chapter 3. John says, I baptise you with water for repentance... But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise with you, you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. At this point, right, John just like rallies together a whole number of Old Testament promises and sort of bundles them all together, right? He insists that the, the word about the Spirit in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Joel 2 and Isaiah 11 are being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus is marked by a baptism, an outpouring of salvation in the form of the life-giving Spirit. 
But John also picks up another resounding note that we find in the Old Testament, that when Jesus the Messiah comes, he'll also come in judgment. He's coming through on that commitment as well. He says the new Elijah is here, just like God said. The Spirit is about to be poured out in salvation and judgment, just as God said. And now the Son of God, the servant of Yahweh himself has come, just as God has said. Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, verse 15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Then Jesus, oh, sorry, then John consented. In calling people to journey out into the wilderness, out into the desert near the Jordan River, John is calling people to make a one-off, decisive statement that they were broken, they were without hope, and they really, really needed God's help. Which probably explains why John, right, balks when his second cousin, Jesus, turns up and joins the line down by the river. John somehow knows that Jesus is God's king, his Messiah, and John knows that this king has come to to judge and to save in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, how could this Messiah enter into his baptism of repentance? How could it be possible that Jesus, the Son of God, sinless, perfect son need to come and make a public statement of neediness? Why does Jesus need to be baptised? This is another moment where I want you to turn to the person next to you and have a think about that question together for 38.7 seconds. Why does Jesus need to be baptised? Why does Jesus need to be baptised? Turn to the person next to you. Have a quick think about that. Why do you think Jesus had to be baptised? Go. Five, four... Three, two, one. Let's come back together. Why does Jesus need to be baptised, right? Um, Why, how could Jesus possibly be baptised by John if he is this long-awaited king, the Messiah? Um, it, It does seem like John, I think, is missing part of the picture. So while at one level, it's reasonable enough to think that Jesus doesn't need to return to God as everyone else does, people like you, me and us, Jesus himself says, doesn't he know, I need to go, I need to go through with this. Look again at verse 15. It's really, I think it's fascinating. And by the way, it's unique to Matthew that we get this little phrase. We get, it says, let it be so now, or in other words, allow it for now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, do notice how Jesus says at this point that his baptism is a one-off. It's kind of exceptional. And he says to John, for now, let's do it as a one-off. Why? Because this is the way, notice the wording, for us. For us, he says, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says they've got to do something together, which is a key part of God's plan. Now, for Matthew, as we go through Matthew, the concept of fulfillment is really significant. We're going to see the word fulfillment just popping up all over the place. In Greek, it's pleuroo, to fill up. But so is 
the idea of righteousness really significant for Matthew? We'll see that as we look at the Sermon on the Mount in the coming week. Jesus comes to fulfill the law so that our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees so that we can enjoy life with God forever in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what happens here in the Jordan is a significant step before making that a possibility. Fulfilling all righteousness isn't sort of a box-ticking exercise, just completing a form. It's an important moment in God fulfilling his promises. What is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing as he gets baptised in the Jordan with a whole bunch of others? What is he doing? He is identifying with people like us. He's identifying with people like you and me. The faithful one identifies with the faithless. Faithful Israel. The true Israel identifies with the old Israel. So the one who ends his ministry on a cross murdered by sinful people begins his ministry in a river surrounded by sinful human beings. Because Jesus is utterly convinced that for him to live for us and to die for us and to rise for us and to give us life, he must stand with us. He must be one of us. He can only share the righteousness that he has, that he brings, if he becomes one of us. Being baptised by John in the Jordan is a sign of that, a public sign of that. And then look what happens next, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, I don't know what the voice sounded like, but I think it sounds something like this. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Something like that. Yeah. Jesus climbs back onto the bank of the river. His father intervenes and the spirit descends and on him and a booming voice resounds, this is my son. This little account of the descent of the spirit coupled with God's voice throws us all the way back to Genesis chapter one, the opening part of the Bible where the spirit of God hovered over the waters and it reminds us of Isaiah 11 where God says of the promised Davidic king, the spirit of Yahweh shall be on him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. We have echoes here of Psalm chapter 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 42. Now Matthew says in this part of God's word, he doesn't say anything about who heard these words that were there. He didn't say anything about what the spirit looked like as it descended, what the spirit, you know, how anyone else around the place reacted at the time. Why? Because that's not the point. His focus is on Jesus. And with all these hints, all these allusions, all these Old Testament echoes, loaded with the promises of God, Matthew's saying to us, God comes through on his commitments. All the promises of God find their resounding, living, breathing yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about to sing a song later in the gathering called Yes and Amen. It goes like this. Sing along with me if you know how to sing it. 
Faithful you are. Faithful, can't hear you. Faithful forever you will be. Faithful you are. All your promises are yes and amen. All your promises are yes and amen in Christ. There you go. We should have that bit on there. I do this all the time as like a little audition for the band, hoping that Jesse might go, wow, Jacko, you've got the best voice. You really should get your... No, that's not true. But you see, in Christ's coming, in the launch of his ministry here in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, God demonstrates that he always comes through on his commitments. He can be trusted, absolutely. So what are we to do with this today? Right now, as we reread Matthew's account of these events, a bit over 2,000 years down the track, Matthew wants us to read these words and realize afresh that we can trust God because our God is utterly committed to doing for us what he has promised. Amen? See, the trustworthiness of God, his reliability, His willingness and ability to come through on his promises and commitments is the bedrock, it's the foundation on which a a healthy Christian life is built. You know, I think all of life can be boiled down to two simple challenges, trusting God in the midst of crisis and trusting God the rest of the time, yeah? So from about the middle of the year last year, 2023, here at City Light North, we had a, a kind of crisis of sorts to manage, We'd lost an elder in difficult circumstances. And in many ways, we, we cried out to him. We confidently trusted that God, even though things had happened and not gone too particularly well, that even in the midst of that, God would build his church, bring glory to Jesus as he worked it out. Sometimes we have to trust God in the midst of crises. In many ways, the crisis is kind of over. Things are Okay. So, so now, what are we to do now as we deal with much more kind of normal challenges of fluctuating attendance, building community, ordering coffee by 10 a.m., RSVPing on Slack, teaching the Bible, running regular training sessions, improving policies, reviewing governance, getting on with knowing each other? What do we do in the midst of that? Simple. We need to keep trusting God. We need to trust God to keep coming through on his promises. And in that sense, not much has changed. You know, God's remarkable track record that Matthew puts before us gives us every reason to trust him in the small and even the real and even the ordinary challenges that come our way. Week by week, month by month, year by year, God piles up more and more and more and more and more reasons for us to trust him. But actually, he's given us the most compelling reason to trust him. God has demonstrated in Jesus' incarnation and baptism and preaching and healing and life and death and resurrection and pouring out of the Holy Spirit that he is the God who honours every commitment he makes. In Christ, God has already given us every reason to trust him. And if we needed confirmation, we get it again in the first 11 chapters of, uh, verse 11 verses of chapter 4. 
There is so much we can say about the temptation narrative of Jesus, but in the flow of Matthew's argument, it's quite clear that he wants to underline that nothing, nothing can deflect or distract God from coming through on his commitments, not even the evil one, not even the devil himself. Now, as we've already seen this a couple of times, Matthew isn't one for giving long, detailed explanations of when he introduces new ideas. His concerns are sweeping and theological. You can see that in the abrupt intro to chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Straight off the back of Jesus' river plunge and the stunning declaration from his father, this is my son, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on him, it's showtime, or actually it's showdown time, really. There's direct confrontation between the evil one at the site of Israel's spectacular failure in the wilderness that we read about in Exodus. Like Israel, Jesus is there in the wilderness Like Moses and Elijah at Mount Sinai, Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, it seems, is the ultimate and new leader of God's people, the new prophet, the representative new Israel, and the devil is coming for him, wants him. Basically, the tempter, the devil, tries to deflect and derail Jesus' mission as the son of God, the Davidic long-promised king. Have a look. Firstly, verse 3, he encourages Jesus to make life easy for himself by making bread from stone. Then in verse 5, he encourages Jesus to focus on himself. And then in verse 9, he wants to see if Jesus wants to grab the power for himself. Now, the devil is clever enough to use the Bible to woo Jesus away from his mission, but Jesus will not be distracted. He won't be deflected. Three times Jesus quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Have a look, verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8. Then Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord God to, your te- to the test. It's Deuteronomy 6. And then verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Deuteronomy 6. And then verse 11, the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Bottom line, Jesus wins. Yeah? Showdown, devil, Jesus, Jesus wins. He cannot be distracted or derailed from his mission, which should come as no surprise because God always comes through on his commitments. Now, there are so many implications that flow from this passage. Firstly, like we can take from this passage that the devil is a real being who's going to do his utmost to frustrate and undermine the mission of God regarding even insignificant people like you as like legitimate targets. In addition, the methods of the evil one are to make us focus on ourselves rather than on God whether that's by encouraging us to seek a comfortable or easy life, to bolster our egos, to advance our own agendas, or even to grab control for ourselves. Perhaps there's an example here as well of the the power of Scripture, God's Word in the face of temptation. But none of those things, I I don't think, are Matthew's primary concern. 
He wants to get us to get the reassuring fact that God, come what may, can be trusted. Nothing in this universe can deflect him as Jesus stares down the devil, never flinching, not for a second. And just in case we're a little slow on a warm Sunday morning, he adds verses 12 to 16. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. John the Baptist's arrest by Herod Antipas, although doesn't, Matthew doesn't mention it, is really bad news. But all it succeeds in doing is launching the next phase of God's rescue plan from the unlikely place, bandit country, the unlikely melting pot that is deepest, darkest, Galilee, just as God had promised 800 years earlier in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Yes, God works at his own pace. Yes, sometimes it looks like and sometimes it feels like his cause is floundering. Yes, there will be apparent setbacks. But as we will hear Jesus spell out in the rest of the gospel, God is building his church and not even the gates of Hades will be able to stop that. Our God always comes through. He is utterly, unflappably, unshakably trustworthy. That was true when Jesus launched his public ministry. And guess what? It's still true today, right now. I don't know what's on your mind at the moment. I had lots of things on my mind last night. I struggled to sleep. I don't know what's on your mind at the moment. Maybe it's financial challenges, cost of living crisis, impacting, I heard the other day, more than 60% of us at least. Maybe it's financial challenges. I know for some of us in our church community at the moment, things that are on our mind are family issues. Maybe it's health issues. Maybe you're feeling really anxious or lonely. Maybe just feeling overwhelmed. Following last week, where we sort of raised the idea of struggling with things related to sex. I know your head today may be full of fears about the future. Maybe you're having second thoughts about decisions you've made. All of those things, brothers and sisters, are real and pressing. But know this. None of these things can ever rattle the rock-solid trustworthiness of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our God has demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt that he is relentlessly dependable. He will do what is promised. It may take a while. It may unfold in unexpected ways. I think you could say that's the story of us here at Cedar Light Church, North Adelaide. But come through on his commitments, brothers and sisters. He will. 
He will. For he is faithful. Matthew's point in these chapters as he carefully describes the events at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry are essentially the same of that of the Apostle Peter who writes in 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 8, hear these wonderful words. Do not forget, brothers and sisters, he's writing to believers, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to turn back to God. But verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You see, based on his promise, we, God's people, today wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where that little glimpse in that little part of the world where Jesus was operating and there was no sickness and no death, no need for doctors, no need for physios, no need for any health care, that will become a reality in the entire new creation. And so based on his promise, what do we do? We wait. We follow. And we trust because our God comes through on his commitments. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm just going to give you a moment in the quietness of your heart to come before the Lord uh, with whatever you need to speak with him this morning regarding whatever part of your life, wherever you find yourself today, knowing that he comes through on his commitments and is trustworthy. Loving Heavenly Father and Lord, when so much around us is shaky, when people thirst for certainty and faint for fear, we will not be shaken. We will not be afraid. For you are our God and we praise you that you are with us. We praise you this morning afresh that nothing can stand against your purposes whether we're in a season today of crisis or calm, we desire to trust you, Father, and seek you. Father, we praise you this morning that all our needs are met by you. Our hope for security is in you. Our satisfaction is found in you. Our salvation is found in you. And so again this morning, We throw ourselves upon your grace and mercy. We turn back to you. And once again, we set our eyes and our hearts on your power, your faithfulness, and your glory. 
And we remember, Father, that you do all things well. And so we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.